Please remain standing as you're able. Uh, following the Shema and the scripture reading, it will be uh, our privilege to hear from Dr. Gareth Lloyd-Jones, who is Professor Emeritus at Bangor University in Bangor, Wales, and has been with us uh, this weekend, led a, a workshop for uh, religious professionals on Friday and a workshop for the congregation um, yesterday, and it's been sponsored by the J. Maurice Smith Lectureship Fund and a celebration of our 100th uh, anniversary uh, it has been a privilege uh, to be with Dr. Jones. He does uh, two, um, I think, really uh, interesting things and good things for us. The first is he ties together both the academy and the church, those, those two places too long uh, divided, and also helps us see that the Bible is not just a place for answers, but perhaps more significantly a place uh, to raise significant questions, and I think he will do that for us. Uh, this morning, but let's come before God's word, much as Jesus would have likely done uh, as we uh, do part of the Shema together. If you'll follow after me, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Had. Together, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. seventh chapter. Listen for the word of the Lord. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations, mightier and more numerous than you, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for that would turn away your children from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But this is how you must deal with them. Break down their altars, smash their pillars, hew down their sacred poles, and burn their idols with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all of the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And then from the book of Acts in the ninth chapter. Now in Joppa there was a disciple whose name was Tabitha, which in Greek is Dorcas. She was devoted to good works and acts of charity. At that time she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples who heard that Peter was there sent two men to him with the request, Please come to us without delay. So Peter got up and went with them, and when he arrived, he took them to the room upstairs. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and outer clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put all of them outside, and then he knelt down and prayed. He turned to the body and said, Tabitha, get up. Then she opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her up. 
Then calling the saints and widows, he showed her to be alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Meanwhile, he stayed in Joppa for some time with a certain Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I cannot really speak with any authority, but I suspect that every religion has its taboos. It has its prohibited customs, its specific foods, its holy objects, its sacred animals, and in the case of people, untouchables. That's certainly true of Judaism, where a clear distinction is made between clean and unclean between pure and defiled. And it's not an issue, this purity, that can be cleared up with a shower and a bar of soap. We're not talking about that kind of cleanliness. We are talking about something which is much more complicated and much more difficult. Spiritual cleanliness. And don't underestimate the significance of spiritual cleanliness in religions, certainly in Judaism. A lamb is clean, a pig is unclean. A man is unclean if he's been in the presence of a dead body. A woman is unclean during menstruation and for 40 days after the birth of a boy. And I'm sorry to tell you, ladies, for 80 days after the birth of a girl. But I'm only quoting the Bible, so don't blame me. No emails. A strict Jew will not eat any food in a non-Jewish household because your kitchen is not kosher. It's spiritually unclean. However much you have scrubbed your pots and pans, it will make no difference. Now, during the time of Jesus, certain occupations were also deemed to be unclean or ritually impure, which meant that they were dishonorable. They carried a certain stigma in public opinion. And for the benefit of the faithful, the rabbis drew up a list of what they described as the despised trades. These were professions which a father should discourage his son from following because those who practiced them suffered from social degradation. People looked down on them for various reasons. A tax gatherer 
for example, was working for the occupying power and enriched himself by dishonesty. He cooked the books. The shopkeeper was mistrusted because he was tempted to overcharge his customers. The tailor and the launderer came into daily contact with women and might well get involved in a spot of hanky-panky. Physicians were unscrupulous because they attended those, only those who could pay the fee. Butchers were untrustworthy because they sold meat which is past its sell-by date. The list goes on of the despised trades until you come right to the bottom where three trades are asterisked. The dung collector, the copper smelter, and the tanner. Now, there's no moral stigma attached to these people. They're not regarded as unscrupulous or as dishonest. They're listed simply because you could smell them a mile away. And the rabbis decreed that for this reason, their wives could divorce them if they found that they could stand the stench no longer. Or if they had run out of deodorant, I suppose. Now, when you remember that divorce was almost exclusively on the husband's side in Judaism, men could divorce their wives, but women couldn't divorce their husbands, you will appreciate how deprived these three individuals were of their human rights. And I can see from your expression, that you regard this piece of intelligence as a sobering thought and that you are firmly on the side of the dung collector. You sympathize with him. His wife can actually divorce him. Now cast your mind back to the second lesson. It ended by saying that Peter stayed on in Joppa for some time at the house of a man named Simon, a tanner, a respectable Jewish gentleman, chose to have bed and breakfast with someone who earned his living in animal carcasses, a despised trade. A tanner, from a certain standpoint, was permanently unclean. So Peter was deliberately contravening Jewish law by staying with him. Read the next chapter, and he's in even deeper water, isn't he? Because he begins eating all those foods he shouldn't eat, like bacon sandwiches and so on. Remember? Chapter 10 of Acts. What you get here is just the tip of the iceberg. Things are going to get far worse, and there's going to be a very big row about it. Christians are great at fighting. It was enough, this staying with a tanner, to give the rigid folk in Jerusalem apoplexy. No 
orthodox, right-minded Jew would ever dream of accepting hospitality from a tanner. Now, what intrigues me, and I wanted to intrigue you for at least ten minutes, otherwise we're not going to sing from the same hymn sheet here. What intrigues me about this is, why did Luke bother to tell us what Simon's occupation was? It's the last word in the chapter. A man called Simon, a tanner. Why did he tell us that, knowing now what we know about despised traits? That's my question. That's what intrigues me. We've just had a lovely little story about Dorcas and the healing, and suddenly we get this P.S. at the bottom, an addendum, which tells us that Simon stayed with a tanner. My point is this, is that an inconsequential detail that doesn't really matter? Or is Luke, or whoever wrote it, I guess it was Luke, we won't go into that, puts it in deliberately? Now I want to suggest that it's not in by accident. Luke put that last word in deliberately. He's making a point. He is recording the first tentative step taken by the early Christians in the direction of liberalism, inclusivism, and universality. Peter's action flies in the face of the conservatism, the exclusivism, and the nationalism of first century Judaism. He's beginning to reject the rigidity in which he'd been brought up. He's starting to unlearn the habits and traditions of a lifetime. Now let's take that verse and use it to consider two aspects of religion. Inclusion and exclusion. Inclusion and exclusion in two great faiths, right? Judaism and Christianity. Let's begin with exclusion. Every religion has the mechanism for maintaining the identity of the group, for defending its members against outsiders, for distinguishing between us and them. We all have it. And Judaism is no exception. We've already mentioned the purity laws found in Leviticus, which marginalized many people. Ask the dung collector. Marginalized women for certain periods in every month. A more extreme case you heard in the first lesson. Deuteronomy chapter 7. When you come into the land and you meet all those unpronounceables, what are you supposed to do to them? You're supposed to kill them. And you better do so because if you don't, I will be very angry with you and I will destroy you. Now, there's no margin for error here. That's what the Torah says. This is what you should do to people 
who don't agree with you, who you find unacceptable when you go into Canaan. And why was that said? Well, because the Canaanites were pagans. And they might turn us into pagans if we mix with them. So the only way to defend ourselves is to kill the innocent. That's what you get. You see, exclusion like that comes from a godlike certainty that allows no debate. From a total conviction that one side is in possession of absolute truth and the other side is irredeemably evil. Ultimately, that kind of certitude, if you have it, will lead to violence. In the case of ancient Israel, it led to genocide. And so we have a text with which we have to struggle. Text we don't like. In the case of modern Islamic fundamentalists, it led to the Twin Towers. Religious or ideological totalitarianism is an essential ingredient of genocide and suicide bombings. You've got to believe that you are absolutely right and that everyone else is absolutely wrong. But of course, Christians should not feel superior. Our record is by no means a clean one. Beginning with the Crusades, on to the Inquisition, down to the mission to the New World, on to what the Puritan Fathers did to the American Indians. It's not a good story, is it, really? Christians have shown very little charity towards the infidel. In what is euphemistically described as the age of faith, you know, the, the age when the church was dominant in the Middle Ages. Christians viciously persecuted those who did not agree with them. Not only did they excommunicate them, they executed them. So if you didn't agree, you just got your head chopped off. They justified their actions from Scripture. Religion was the primary motivating force. You'd still find it today. Jews and Muslims, remember, associate the cross not with love and charity and hope and forgiveness, but with violence. Crusade is still a dirty word. Perhaps, perhaps we should admit that there is much in the Bible which is not worthy to serve as a model for imitation. At least I hope you don't imitate Deuteronomy chapter 7 for the people you don't like. Perhaps we should recognize that strong religious beliefs can be quite literally deadly. Exclusion, warfare, and violence go hand in hand with religions of spiritual superiority. The promotion of hate by organized religion received far too little attention in the past by scholars and pastors. But 9-11 has given us all food for thought. 
Though by now, Christians have stopped burning heretics, that is, people who don't agree with them, every church still distinguishes insiders from outsiders. Checkpoints still exist. Initiation rites have to be performed before an individual can belong. Many churches make membership conditional on observing a set of rules and subscribing to specific doctrines. And if you don't, there's the door. You can leave. Only recently, in this ecumenical age, the Vatican reiterated its policy of refusing Holy Communion to non-Roman Catholics. For almost 20 centuries, women were barred from exercising a priestly ministry. And in some major churches, that exclusion still persists. In Anglicanism, the Episcopal Church, the debate has moved on, as you well know, to sexual orientation. How are you wired? How are you built? But the principle is the same. Insiders versus outsiders. Us and them. Those who have the truth on their side and those who don't. However, it is surely gratifying to note that side by side with exclusive texts, the Old Testament also contains very positive references to outsiders, which brings us to inclusion. Do not ill-treat foreigners who are living in your land. Treat them as you would a fellow Israelite and love them as you would love yourself. Terrific text from the book of Leviticus. Now put that against the one I just quoted from Deuteronomy. Which do you want? You can't have both. It's one or the other. They contradict each other. And they contradict each other because theology changes. Theological opinion changes. It took hundreds of years to, read, to, read, to write the Bible. And in hundreds of years people changed their minds. Can you see the change of mind there? By the time they get to Leviticus, they say, well, no, we can't be doing this. This ain't right. You've got to love the neighbor. You've got to love the foreigner. You've got to treat the foreigner as you would want him to treat you. There's a movement, you hear it, from nationalism to universalism. Yes, yes, it's only one theme, but it's there. It is there in the Bible, alongside this concern for exclusion and killing everybody who doesn't agree with you. Towards the end of the Old Testament period, that major universalist insight, which you find in the law then, you find in the prophets, you find it in the Psalms, that universalist insight began to lose ground because the Jews were being hemmed in by pagans. They were the Greeks this time. And so they panicked. And in their panic, they built a wall, metaphorically, to keep people out. Exclusion came back. Christianity originated when this universalist outlook 
which was losing ground at the end of the Old Testament period, found in the law preached by the prophets, was recaptured by a Galilean teacher from Nazareth. It's difficult, at least I find it difficult to know what was sufficiently objectionable about Jesus' teaching to lead to the cross. What, what is it so, what was so difficult? But it, it, in my opinion, it must be something to do with embracing outsiders, with threatening the boundaries of Judaism by refusing to draw a distinction between us and them. He just wouldn't acknowledge that some people were more important in God's eyes than others. He just said, that won't work. He invited Matthew. And you know what Matthew's job was? Yeah, a tax gatherer, a member of the despised trades. He, he, he invited Matthew to join his inner circle. The choice becomes infinitely more significant when you record the list that the rabbis drew up. A woman who'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years and was therefore permanently unclean. She couldn't touch anybody. No one could touch her. You couldn't sit in the same seat as she sat. Permanently unclean. Came behind him and tugged on his shawl, his prayer shawl, because she wanted his attention to see if she could be healed. And he turned round and he said, Don't panic, it's okay. Your faith has healed you. Go home. See, the significant thing about that miracle is, it's not the miracle itself. There were plenty of miracles. When you read the miracles, don't ask, don't, don't wonder about the miracle. Ask, why is the miracle recorded? That's the first question you ask. Why did the gospel writer record that particular miracle? Because after all, miracles were ten a penny. Mark says that whenever Jesus came into a village, they brought all the sick out to him and he healed them. Now, wherever he went, they brought the sick out and healed them. There must have been, there must have been hundreds of healings then. We only get very few of them in here, the Bible. The point about this miracle is, now, watch. Just watch. How is he going to react? An unclean woman has touched him. Now, the Orthodox Jew would have gone ballistic. He would have regarded himself as unclean himself, and then he couldn't go to church. He couldn't go to the temple. The important thing about that miracle is Jesus' attitude to an untouchable. In Judaism, children were less important than adults. Remember how people brought their children to Jesus? Remember the disciples? What the disciples said? They shooed them away. Now, Jesus doesn't want children. Jesus doesn't like Sunday school, they said. He doesn't want to see children. The reaction, Mark says, Jesus was angry. Now, don't gloss over these words. Read them carefully, because they are carefully written. It's a very good, strong Greek word there for angry. He's not a bit miffed. He's not peeved. He's not annoyed. He's not disappointed. Jesus is angry. 
and you want to put that anger into his reaction. Let the children come to me. Don't you dare stop them. Because children are just as important as anybody else. The disciples were Jews. They didn't understand that. Because that was the custom. Throughout his ministry, you see, Jesus insisted that people were more important than principles. A point that he makes, of course, very forcibly in the parable of the Good Samaritan. When those guys who came down from Jerusalem wouldn't touch the man in the ditch because they thought he might be dead. And if he was dead, they'd be unclean. They might blow up. I don't know. Who touches him? The Samaritan touches him. And he commends the Samaritan. Because people are more important than principles. Was it, was it this kind of attitude that Peter had picked up, I wonder, and which inspired him to stay for some time with a tanner. Now, let me do what you've been wanting me to do for the last ten minutes. Get to the point. Well, it's this. It's this, isn't it? Clearly, there is evidence in both Judaism and Christianity in our Bible that these two religions show great concern for outsiders. They are embraced and they are included. But it is equally clear that this concern is often overshadowed by the basic human instinct of self-preservation. And we all have that. We want to preserve the company. And that leads to exclusion. In both religions, that instinct has predominated. In both, the mechanism is still in place for distinguishing between us and them. That's why you can't take communion in a Roman Catholic church, because you're not part of them. Well, because there is an obvious tension then in the Bible between inclusion and exclusion, contemporary Christians are left with some crucial questions for which Scripture has no unambiguous answer. So don't try and go to the Bible to find an answer. It doesn't give you one. All it gives you is a series of options, and you choose which way you want to go. You can use the Bible to blow people up, or you can use it to love them. They're both in the Bible. The onus is on you. Consider these questions. How can we believe the truth of the gospel and not at the same time be offended or threatened by those who disagree with us? How can we ensure that our own religious convictions do not alienate us from those who don't share them? How can we have sympathy with and an understanding of the other without letting our own side down? How can we demonstrate the love of Christ to those who differ from us 
in ethnic background, social status, or sexual orientation. I don't want to pretend for a moment that those questions are easy to answer. But I do know that when we fail to answer them correctly, we can cause a great deal of damage. What I've been trying to say is best expressed, perhaps, by an English hymn writer of the 19th century, F.W. Faber, in a hymn which you sometimes sing. But your hymn book omits the vital verse. So much for Methodist hymn books. There is a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. For the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. And this is what you don't sing. But we make his love too narrow by false limits of our own. And we magnify his strictness with a zeal he will not own. Peter, looking for lodgings in Joppa, would have said amen to that. And if I had thought of it sooner, I could have spared you a sermon. Amen.